Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Maddie Fry. Maddie is a podcaster. Her show is Another Look at London. She's also a, an incredibly talented writer and contributor to The Telegraph, The New Statesman, Time, BBC, and Sky News. Uh, you can find some of her writing uh, in our bio and our link below. She discusses and focuses a lot on religion, in, in, in particular, how religion benefits society and how our beliefs can help us make sense of a world that can oftentimes seem a little senseless. And I don't even, I, I think little is me being kind. I mean, oftentimes it can seem that our world is, is just in a, in a state of, it's a step away from chaos. So we talk very much about why religion does matter and why belief matters. And I try to draw a, a line between religion and faith. I oftentimes uh, deduce religion to being this system of governance. And there's oftentimes an asymmetrical power balance between the, the religious leaders and the followers, their congregate, whatever you want to call them, and that and faith. And to me, faith is like, ah, this is what I need. This is my system to make sense of the world. And we try to have a conversation around that. Now, Maddie came to me actually because she had heard episodes that, that we had done and, and wanted to challenge the sort of uh, atheistic narrative that she was sort of interpreting that we were kind of anti-religious against faith, uh, to which I told her, actually, I, I, I am a man of faith. I mean, I have my system of beliefs. I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily one political religious philosophy or anything like that so i said why don't you come on the show she agreed to and 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 here's our conversation so i hope you enjoy it um this this podcast is brought to you by ourselves of course so if you enjoy please be sure to subscribe on youtube our show on there is i'm probably wrong about everything and our instagram is probably wrong about everything thank you so much and have a wonderful day Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we have with us Maddie Fry. Maddie is a journalist, podcast host of Another Look at London, an author, and a script, uh, I guess, a script consultant helper at ScriptWrite, uh, as well as the daughter of someone who we've had on the show, Graham Fry. And it's so awesome having her on because she listened to some of the episodes and she emailed me about uh, a previous episode where we talked about hell and the afterlife and, and um, a, a one-sided depiction of what religion, faith, and Christianity is. And she's proposed another side, which I think is wonderful. And I definitely want to share her views on this. So Maddie, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Thank you for having me on here. And uh, thank you for responding so graciously to my, I think it was a very long email that I sent, but um, I did try to be, yeah, I tried to be fair, I guess, in my, uh, my criticism. Well, and, and, and you know what? I think that in our society, we, we need to get away from reacting to criticism and see it for what it is. It's just somebody providing another perspective or a different way of looking at things. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, 
I want to have this person on the show, which I don't even think was what you were going for. I mean, that wasn't even your angle, but, uh, but here we are. And I think in the 21st century, we're having, I see that we're having a bit of an existential crisis with faith and religion. And so much of the, of, of, I guess you could say the dogmatic beliefs of what certain faiths and religions are versus what they actually are about are kind of are having a clash yeah indeed and i think i get the impression that um the debate is quite different on the other side of the atlantic um mm. obviously i know you're based in canada but i assume it's quite hard to ignore things that go on in the usa as much as you might like to at times and um it's i get the sense that there's strongly a clash between the you know religious fundamentalism and the huge lobby and the huge political sway that has over in the states and over in the uk and in a lot of western europe the picture is very different like religion's almost it's an irrelevance to a lot of people um i think fewer than 10 percent of people in this country would say they go to a, a part of a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a temple um and i think in many ways it's the other pendulum swing like the default is is sort of hardcore rationalism or militant rationalism. Um, and that's that kind of in a lot of ways was ushered in, I think, by the new atheist movement of the, the late 2000s or the pre-2010s. But I think religion in this country has been declining. Organized religion, organized religious attendance has been declining for a long time. So I get the sense that there's a sort of um there's fundamentalisms on both sides. And um for anybody in the middle, it can sometimes feel a bit like you have to shout to make your case heard a bit and to sort of say well some of us don't adhere to the caricatures or at least try not to um and I write a lot about religion as part of my day job you know I'm a journalist and I write a lot about history politics religion particularly how religion interacts with popular culture as well um and so um I'm very interested in kind of how those things are all perceived publicly but also it can be a frustration because I sometimes look at what people say or hear what people say and think well that's just not my experience at all and like so that can be but then that's also as you say it's a good it's a good reason to engage in debate and conversation and I think definitely our world needs better dialogue and mm. the ability to disagree better I think um, yes I, I I think that that is one of the key tenets of the 21st century is how to disagree and how to use conflict not as a means of destruction but of creation of, of making a better world um and and again this ties into your experiences a lot of people they have these they, they have these bitter experiences of say the, the the fundamentalism of say let's say catholicism but then you share your experience of how it hasn't been that way. So tell us a little bit about what your experience has been with religion and faith in a world, in a country that seems to be really like only 10% that way, which is to me is a very small number. Yeah, I think it's possibly even less than 10%. I think it's tiny and um, tiny and so in terms of my, my family background, I wasn't raised in a religious family at all. Like my, um, my mother's sort of from an Irish Catholic family um, and that's something she rejected as she got older, um, particularly because I think the form of Catholicism she was handed was quite repressive. It was quite misogynistic. Um, 
had some good aspects to it too. Like, um, uh, you know, my my grandparents on her side were very part of quite a strong left wing um, mm. trade unionist tradition. Um, and I think strongly believed in the idea that you should serve the community and that you should, um, whatever your, your job is, your career should be about helping others. It shouldn't be about making money for its own sake, but also, you know, the school she went to, women were not encouraged to really have a career. Uh, your job was to get married and have lots of Catholic babies or become a nun, preferably. Um, and so she rejected that, which, you know, <laughs> quite sympathetic to the reasons why she did. And my my dad is, I think he's from, a, his family are Quakers going back several generations because our surname Fry is a Quaker name. And right. um, the Quakers have quite a big established presence in the UK they were they were major philanthropists and they were good philanthropists actually they did things like um they started factories where they provided really good housing for their workers um a lot of Quakers did things like campaign for reforms of prisons they campaigned against warfare against slavery so that tradition is there on my dad's side but not not in the last few generations so I wasn't I wasn't raised at all with any kind of belief. It was something that I started exploring as a teenager, um, basically because um, I was a nerd. I was not at all interested in sports or anything that I think my school would have liked me to be interested in. I just sort of wanted to read, and um, I I start I read the standard stuff that a lot of people read about Christianity, like C.S. Lewis. Um, mm. But I also got very into reading Tolstoy. Um, he wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You, where he kind of laid out this idea that it was almost like a way to, it was almost like a clarion call to feudal Russia at the time to say, look, we are so obsessed with locking people up, with torturing people, with warfare, with, if you think what Russia was like before the revolution, it was sort of, you know, a feudal system where the peasants were kept down. And I'm not saying obviously communism was a whole lot better, but that is a whole right. other thing. Um, and that was a big influence on me, that text, because he talked about the idea that it was the first time I'd really read a text that sort of said, that married Christianity with the idea that there should be more justice in, on this planet, in this world, and that there should be a world where um, equality, hope, and a better living standard should be in reach of everybody. Mm. Um, and so, and so when I was 19, I was in my first year of university, I and I got talking to a lot of people who were on similar spirit, because you know what you're like when you, you get to university and when you're when you're young, you kind of just you're so desperate to kind of consume everything, think about everything, talk about everything. And I I realized this was for me. So I did sort of make a sort of, I'm always wary of using cliches, but I did sort of make a leap of faith. Um and since then it's been it's always been a subject, I guess, that's fascinated me and I've been fascinated by other people's spiritual journeys and particularly I'm interested in how religion is understood in the public realm and globally and um but also navigating that in the UK has sometimes been quite a challenge because right. sometimes people can for a long time I was very reluctant to admit that I was religious um like I almost had a sort of I don't want to belittle the phrase coming out, but I sort of had something like that with my family where I was like, I don't really want to tell them, but I suspect I should because this is a big deal to me. And um, my dad was sort of fine with it. He kind of was a bit like, yeah, you know, you do you. Um, and and my mother was, took her a while to adjust, but she kind of came around and I think realised that what I, what I was into was nothing at all like what she'd been raised with. Um, and so, and that's the sort of thing I've been, 
thinking about, writing about, speaking about in a lot of my career so far. So um, that's that's where I've been for the last, I guess, 13 years. Um, and yeah, and I do think at the moment it's um, better conversations around this are definitely needed. So um, 100%. yeah, what you're doing, this podcast is a good thing. Well, and, and, and one of the questions that we had talked about in our emails is this, what is religion uh, when it's, because so much of history, religion has been used as a tool to kind of manipulate and, and, and keep in power. It's been used for human purposes, not for what religion is truly about. I mean, we look at, we talk about Jesus. Um, we talk about, you know, Buddha, all, all these figures. I mean, because because there's also um, militant Buddhists in the world that are like, mm. you know, considered terrorist sects, right? Point being is that, is there a difference between religion and faith? And, and what is the difference? Because I don't see myself as religious, but I see myself as someone who has faith. That's an interesting point. I, I think a while ago I would have said there is a difference between the two, but I, I've actually been more comfortable in recent years with saying that I am religious. I didn't used to be. And I think this is almost, um, there's a reluctance a lot so certainly I think if you're either in this country or in other parts of the world where you think where you're a believer but you consider yourself to be a progressive I think there's a there's a covert pressure not to use the word religious because it has so much baggage but actually um I feel personally that sort of the two one leads to the other and and it's I think for people maybe who had a very repressive upbringing and their understanding of religion was mostly about rules and regulation and what you do, what you don't do, don't masturbate, God forbid that you ever have sex. You know, I can understand why some of those people might think, yeah, religion, nothing for me, but mm. I still don't, wouldn't say I'm a hardcore rationalist. I might be spiritual or whatever. I understand where maybe having the partition might be helpful. But for me personally, I feel, well, and indeed there have been a lot of times where religion has been used in, to support some things that are really terrible, but there also have been, a lot of examples were people who would have openly said they were religious did some very very great things like the civil rights movement you know was completely great. rooted in the church yes. you know martin luther king was a deeply religious man like that's there's no denying that edward jenner the man who um pretty much got the smallpox vaccine off the ground did it because partly because he felt it was his duty to god like there were um you know the prison reform movement that my own the quakers and my own family were very involved in um the movements to abolish slavery are often by religious people, liberation theology, which, you know, was Catholic in Latin America and attempts to overcome various dictatorships were often spearheaded by Catholic activists. So there have been sort of, um, I think, quite a lot of times where people who, and, you know, the, also, yeah, another one important was the conscientious objectors in World War II and First World War and then lots of wars, people who've said, you know, I'd rather grow food and drive ambulances than go and kill other people in you know, wars uh, led by politicians have often been people who would have said they belong to a certain religious tradition. So I think it's, I think in some ways it's, it's tricky because I, I think the specific ways that religion can fuck people up are very, I wouldn't want to gloss over them because they're serious and they're yes. real, but also yes. 
in many ways, religion, a bit like politics, is is a tool, and it can be. It has no meaning, I think, in many ways by itself. But people can take it and use it however they want. And many people, humans, have a staggering capacity to use things. Something that could be given to them, which could be very good, and to utterly fuck it up. Um, mm. I think is so. An interesting thing with um, you know, with religious texts, as I feel, it's very it's very common to hear people go, oh, well, you know, the Bible or the Quran, take your pick, is barbaric because it says this, this, and this about stoning, about women, about an eye for an eye. And I sort of want to scream at people and go, well, look, you have to understand these texts in the context they were written. You have to also, and that doesn't just mean saying, oh, well, they lived in an era where people knew less or people were more ignorant. It means, I mean, one example of this is, um, there's a writer called Rob Bell, who's very famous in the US. I don't know how he has a bit of a following over here. I don't know how famous he is in Canada, but he he used to be the evangelical pastor and he created a lot of controversy about a decade ago when he wrote a book saying that there's no hell. He essentially said, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, but I think if God loves everybody, then he's going to bring everybody to him ultimately. And so you cannot, you can't just, and, and it was very much in the context of that world in the US of the fundamentalism and the conservatism that has such a stranglehold clearly there of saying, look, using hell as a scare tactic is not good enough really anymore. And there is no hell. And so, but this was coming from a guy who explicitly would still say he was Christian. And so, and then he later wrote another book, um, which I'm currently reading at the moment, what is the Bible? And in that he talks oh, it's about called how, what what is the know, Bible? What is the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about how we we take phrases like an eye for an eye and use that to condemn the whole of the Bible. But when actually, if you look at the world the Bible was written in, or that particular book in the Bible was written in, an eye for an eye was actually a progressive idea because it used to, in those in those kinds of societies in that kind of era, it used to be that if someone did say if someone kidnapped your child, it was fine for you to go and burn down their village. Yes. That was seen the as Vikings a, did that. Yeah, exactly. Right? Rape, pillage, you know. Um, and, and we still see that sadly in global politics today. Um, but actually, an eye for an eye was introducing the idea of proportionality, saying that you kidnap my child, I can kidnap yours. And that's still not great, but it was yeah. a step forward. But that would keep people from doing it. That would keep people mm. from doing it. Yeah, you could argue it's a deterrent, but and it's so actually, an eye for an eye in the time when the Bible was written was progressive, it was moving human beings forward. But we now obviously see that as a justification for saying well it's therefore fine to have capital punishment or it's fine whatever to have retribution that won't lead to societies getting better but actually if you think well that time was progress it's now our job to try and keep making progress happen and to keep moving forward so yeah I feel like that's religion is such a complicated phenomenon and it's such a big part of how human beings see themselves and see the world that I sort of think it's I think understanding really in many ways. I feel like it's totally fine if people reject it. That's, you know, I completely accept people's right to do that. But I think understanding, I think it annoys me when people reject beliefs because they believe in caricatures or stereotypes or stuff they've just heard of sound bites. I think actually truly understanding the history and the complicated nature in which, you know, gods, monsters, myths, beliefs, of any kind interact with our world is so so important for just yeah understanding the world we live in and other people and, and i think that that's the vital aspect is that 
you talk about progress and how an eye for an eye at the time was progressive, but we live in a different time. And before mm. that, we believed in animism. You know, so what, when we were in the world, we thought the tree was a god. We thought that locally there were deities around us because we couldn't think so globally because of the, the way that we had lived. But as we progress down through the ages, our, our ideas become more, I guess you could say almost specific. It's like, instead of thinking that there's a God of lightning that's shooting lightning bolts and that's why we get thunderstorms, we know it's because of you know high pressure, low pressure systems. But the amazing thing is that we will, all, like what is religion? It's a tool to help us make meaning out of our lives because we are meaning making machines. We need to make meaning. Even, even atheists, I think that, you know, they're, ultimately they're trying to make meaning. They're not trying to be, be meaningless. They're trying to say, okay, you know, what am I supposed to do while I'm here? And th that's why to me, I don't think you can ever, I don't think you'll ever be able to prove nor disprove God. Um, but we all have to make certain decisions and we all have to find, again, that internal system of guidance that i think religion offers and and yeah, I, I indeed yeah yeah for I, sure I, yes i wonder too though that you say 10 percent of the population has faith uh and i wonder the, the the 90 other percent how they are in terms of their wellness and and their purpose uh, th th there's a an author i i frequently cite uh victor frankel who, who wrote uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And he, he was uh, a prisoner of war. He was Jewish during World War II. He was in Auschwitz. And even there, he was in hell. Like, that's hell. Mm -hmm. He had to find meaning. And he did. And that's what kept him alive. We needed to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I think one of the things that's that's hard probably for a lot of people is to say they were raised religiously but were taught that it was either, say, you choose salvation or you choose eternal damnation, that if you move away from that very binary black and white view, which people should, I think, because that's bad religion in my view, then, <laughs> then you're left with the question of, well, what do I... You can have an existential malaise where you think, well my life has to have some meaning, but where do I find it? And I think it really does, it is a problem for people when, and I've seen it with a lot of people I'm very close to. Um, and and interestingly, I think one of the big debates here in how, and around atheism is that I think, on one level, I hear the argument a lot that, you know, atheism is also a belief system, but actually in many ways it isn't because it's, you know, you could argue it's, it's an anti-belief, it's a negation of belief, but then you also hear I think there's been an attempt by some of the the new atheist writers um, and, you know, people like Hitchens, Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, um, to sort of claim that Sam Harris, to sort of claim that um, atheism and humanism are naturally intertwined. And I don't think they necessarily are, because I think if you, if you believe hardcore rationalism, then you maybe accept that human beings are just sort of selfish robots. I think that's even the phrase Dawkins used. And if that's the case, then, well why should we, you know, why should we have any kind of belief that says don't do this or do that, you know, where does your moral framework come from? And of course, you can have no moral framework or no specific belief system and still, that doesn't obviously mean you're going to go out and murder people, but still, I think for a lot of people, it's an important question of 
why do I believe what I believe? Where do I get my morality? Where do I get my sense of justice? If um, the beliefs I say were raised with no longer matter to me. And I think that's, I think that's why atheism can sometimes, I think for a lot of people trying, if they don't decide they're, they're not religious, what they choose next is quite, I think something, I think I've even had humanism described as atheism plus, which I don't necessarily think is true. Um, but it does pose quite a big question of, well, where do our values come from? Where are they rooted? Where do we look to? And I think in the UK, that is a big question that we've never really answered. I think particularly since religion has declined in public life and for a lot of people. Yeah. Like, what what is the purpose of all of this? And Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan said, you know, without the social constructs, life is, I, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but life mm. is nasty, brutish, and short. And and I think religion, I mean, that's just it. Religion has allowed us to come together. Church, I think it originally meant gathering place. And it was a place where like-minded people could come together and they were able to share stories and, like you say, progress humanity. I mean, without church, without religion, we wouldn't be here. At the same, you know, on the on the same side of that coin, on the other side of that coin, excuse me, of the same coin, is that a lot of the problems that we have are a result of the human capacity in, in creating these 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 problems, such as slavery, right? The the Bible people have said, you know, uh, James Baldwin mentioned in his book, uh, The Fire Next Time, that the book the story of Ham allowed European colonizers to uh, justify slavery because Ham was had one less rib or something like that. Hmm. But then then you hear what Jesus says. And it's like, man, like that guy was the most progressive person of all time in his teachings. That's why he was killed is because he was going to dissolve society. I mean, the, the, the powers that may be, the Pharisees, the Sadducees in Jerusalem, he was a direct threat to him. So much so that they would release Barabbas, a mass murderer. Uh, in exchange for Jesus to be crucified. And I think that that says so much of what faith is to me. Faith is love. Religion to me is like these rules and there's fear. I associate fear-based following to religion. Again, I, I, I love your interpretation because it's challenging my own, but that's how I've often associated it is it's this fear-based following, whereas faith is like the book of songs where, I don't know if it's David, uh, I'm not super well-versed on the Bible, but he has an individual relationship with God. Oh, the and, Psalms, yeah. Yes, yeah, the book of Psalms. And he's talking about his journey, right? And that to me encapsulates what faith is, is it's, it's just about your journey in life with God and how to live at peace and love and not destroy and not hurt and not harm to get through life with as little disruption as possible of the, you know, with, with as little destruction as possible. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You referenced James Baldwin. So I think um, there's a really amazing novel called the underground railroad that came out about five years ago. And if um, that's just, that references the sort of, there are characters in that that mention sort of the son of Ham and the whole, but then also at the same time, there are abolitionists who ardently believed in, who said that, you know, there's no slave right. nor free 
male nor female, Greek nor Jew, if you're all one in Jesus Christ. So um, it's, yeah, I think it's sort of, um, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier, like, the older I get, actually, like, um, I'm nearly, I'm 32 next month, month after next, um, and the more I look at actually what sort of figure Jesus must have been in the world he was in, I think it, it surprises me less and less that the authorities wanted to get rid of him, because if you think about it... He was Socrates. Um, yeah, indeed. He was the one going around saying, this is everything you hold dear, get rid of it, crush it, throw it away. Um, and quite often, and I, and I actually see that more and more in the way a lot of governments around the world find religions a threat, they find religious groups a threat, because they see it as you have a divided soul, you have another loyalty, and that was that is something we just has been an ongoing phenomenon in human history, I think. And and it's funny if you look at the era in which Jesus arrived, like gods in the Roman world, the Greek world, were these incredible figures that you know we now see in classical sort of Hellenistic era statues. You know, they were chiseled, they were they were meant to reflect the best of human beings. But instead, this guy main mode of transport was a donkey, and he went around saying yeah abandon your families yes. hang out with the people who are the least popular wealth doesn't matter and i think in this day and age he'd probably do things like wander into the suburb of london i live and go look we'll just stop fucking obsessing about house prices for five minutes <laughs> like, yeah. you know and that would people don't want to hear that i think you can match probably what his message was back then to whatever these days is the thing that people are most mentally enslaved to mm. economically certainly and say he said, okay, let's burn it to the ground. In fact, in some ways, I feel he was a bit more like, the, often the image sometimes can be that he was, he was a hippie, peacemaker, whatever, but actually I think he was in some ways a bit more like Dionysus or Bacchus or Loki, you know, the sort of from the Norse gods. He was kind of a, a bit more serious maybe because Loki kind of, I think, just enjoyed destruction, whereas I think Jesus was sort of more like, yeah, let's let's have some creative destruction here. Let's get rid of everything that is creating inequality holding people back challenge the systems. people completely and he was a threat to the systems completely and it was you know it was the romans who ultimately nailed him up so i sort of in some ways mm. circling back to your point about religion being sort of about control i feel like it's just it is staggering and sad that so often the message of jesus has been co-opted into something very conservative and hijacked by people who often had a, an agenda that was so wildly different to what he was saying like even if you were just to leave everything else in the bible out and look at the gospels and just look at what in fact there's a book that does um Tolstoy again the um the gospel in brief he basically just distills the gospels together and in fact he even leaves out the resurrection um he just sort of says look what were the teachings of Jesus and very much says you know um this was ultimately the essence of it and it was a message that was fairly unambiguous when you boil it down. Um, and I think it was one that a lot of people who, I mean, okay, back then the label conservative, progressive liberals wouldn't have existed, but I don't think his message was innately conservative. So the fact that it's been hijacked by often very conservative forces in the world, which have created what I think a lot of people sadly do understand to be religion is, is really bad and needs to be needs to be brought back, I think. And um, this is a point, again, Rob Bell kind of makes, um, he sort of says that, there was a point, particularly in the US, where the Jesus movement, as he calls it, got hijacked and mm. by people who had an agenda that was far, far from benign. 
Um, and that is, I think, anybody who cares about what the original message was, even if whether or not you believe in God, I think um, that should be reclaimed. And it's, I still feel, you know, and I still feel like it is something that's worth worth fighting for. Well, as 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 you probably heard, we've interviewed people of the Church of Satan, and mm. uh, what they're actually for. Yeah, they're for the separation of church and state. They're not. They're not. They're not actually against true believers who have this sort of egalitarian, humanistic approach to their 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 various faiths. You know, they're they're not anti-religious in that sense. They're just against the separation of the church and state. And we know through history that when churches involved in state affairs that's always problematic and that always will be problematic because that's not the way it's supposed to be the other, the other piece okay and, and sorry do you mind yeah, yeah sorry, you know what you no no you you go for it because my my point is separate so go for that but um yeah it's interesting you say that because that's i was i was writing about this recently for a piece i was doing about the role of church and state specifically in France um, and about laicite, um, which is this idea they have in France of sort of like secularism, but more the idea that, um, you know, the state should play no role in religion and vice versa. And that- um, But there's some virtue signaling it, there. Yeah, and that it's the way laicite has been used, even though it's meant to be to say, okay, officially there is an absolute separation it's almost turned the idea of adherence to the state, to the Republic in France's case. Uh, yeah, it can be very repressive and it can be, it's been used almost as it's become a secular religion as a way to say to particularly Muslims, sorry, but you can't put your faith identity first. You have to be a citizen of the Republic first. And so I think sometimes it's interesting. Yeah, the church state issue, I I would sort of be like personally, I think, well, if I was starting a nation tomorrow, I was given a patch of land and told build a country. I probably would say it's better to keep religion and state apart, I think, to start with. But I think in terms of how of now, it very much depends when you look at each country. Um, like France and the US are officially secular nations, but they have very, I'd say, very noxious relationships with mm. their religious communities. And I partly, this is a theory, um, it's not, I can't necessarily quant quantify it, but I think that's partly because people who have beliefs are told you can't play a role in the public sphere in the way you would like to, or your identity as a believer comes second. And that can sometimes push people towards more extreme forms of belief. Whereas in the UK, the Church of England and the state are linked. They have been for centuries. And it's interesting because, yeah, my, my other half takes a very different view on this. And he, he's a scholar of um, French history. So he's quite pro laicite the French system whereas I sort of feel in the UK if we were to suddenly say tomorrow well let's let's disestablish church and state one I think that would take up a lot of time um, and a lot of energy and right. most people wouldn't notice because it doesn't impact most people day to day and I think actually in a bizarre way having a link between church and state means people are less likely to try and lobby as fundamentalists in the public sphere because I think in a strange way because it's it's oh, it's, it's so complicated the way identities can be tied up with politics religion but I feel like over here there are some people who even if they're not religious at all don't believe in God still see the Church of England as kind of representing them in some way and it's the same with I think people who are Jewish or Muslim but like they will stand up next to the Archbishop of Canterbury when 
some one of them is making a pronouncement and i think people in some way still feel like they're represented in the public in the public square and therefore don't feel like their voices aren't being heard and i think that is an offshoot of i think a good offshoot of being a country where church and state are intertwined um but that said that's taken centuries for us to get to that point and there has been a lot of bloodshed and a lot of you know we had our civil war and and our civil war i think unlike in unlike in the USA, I think, or, or unlike in so many other places, was about religion. So um, I think the church and state one is is so is so tricky. Um, I would, to round up, I'd just say, yeah, I feel like probably it's it's good to try and have that when you're starting out, but it it won't necessarily. Um, I think sometimes it could lead to to more extremism and more fundamentalism if you're not careful, if you have the rigid separation between the two. I think perhaps an uneasy truce between the two might be the best mm. way forward. I don't know. Yeah, you know what? That's a, that's a good point. I, I guess what I'm saying is that the church should never run the country because mm. we know how that is. Like, like just based on the historical examples of uh, during the middle, middle Ages, or excuse me, the early modern period, the witch trials and this idea of midwives or demons and things like that and and, and and what that resulted in i think that that's sort of where i i i'm afraid of when church groups have a lot of power you know because power corrupts absolute and again the people that that run churches they're human beings right yeah that's that's kind of my concern now the the other thing though is uh i always talk about the historical jesus and again, how who Jesus is can easily be corrupted and has been corrupted. For example, we talk about fundamentalists and, you know, if Jesus came down today, I, I often make this point. If he came down today, uh, he would shake his head at the, at the, the hypocrisy of, of the Christian holding up the sign that says God hates gays. He would not care about two men that love each other. In fact, I think he would be all for it because that's love, right? And then we think about the history of homosexuality. And I think that the reason why the church repressed homosexuality so bad was because a man and a man cannot reproduce. And the idea was that a man and a woman could reproduce, spread the faith, you know, and because Christianity is a, at least historically, has been a faith of, of missionization, whereas Buddhism and other religions have, have not been that way. And that's kind of how Christianity historically has, has allowed itself to spread throughout the world. Is that, would you agree with that or is that? Certainly, I think that's, that's true about the missionization because um, Islam is the same, I think. Right. Islam's philosophical roots are also about the idea that um, there is a need for everybody to be brought into this kind of fold, whereas, yeah, Judaism is not so much. Judaism is far more about lineage, about family, about the idea that um, no. we're the chosen people, we do our thing, the people outside of that do their thing, um, and that's, that's simplifying it a bit. But, um, yeah. I'd but say I think, it's, it's far more yeah. exclusive than inclusive. Mm. Not, not, I mean, we, we attach so many pros and cons to that, but what I mean is just they're kind of like a closed community in the sense of like, we're fine with that. Whereas Christianity has that missionization aspect. I don't know of too many uh, Jewish individuals, rabbi, who are trying to missionize Judaism. 
No, I don't. And I think that's that's innately not really a part of how. And obviously, Judaism has so many different sects and uh, yes. denominations. Obviously, like so many. But yeah, I think that's true. I think that's the philosophical roots of them are are quite different. I think. Um, I think Judaism's roots in the idea that there are specific people who have this status. Um, whereas Christianity is far more the idea that everybody maybe should have this status. Um, but it, yeah, about homosexuality is interesting because I. I mean, there's a large part of me that thinks, unfortunately, human beings have a tendency to ostracize people. And mm. religion, for some people, is a convenient way of justifying that. But I think some of the most homophobic people I've ever encountered, and or you know, and people these days who might be prejudiced of any kind, often you know, don't come from religious people. I think it's that maybe, and it's hard, obviously, to say say everywhere but in this country I think certainly maybe um people might have grown up in a world that was more saturated by Christianity than they are now but I think ah yeah I don't think the reasons why necessarily certainly towards the end of the period when homosexuality was eventually legalized in this country the people's arguments for or against were so rooted in religion I think so much of it was I think it seems to be on a more visceral level of People have this disgust, I think, sometimes about the other and about fear. this idea of things that they say in fear of um, things that are seen as outside the norm. And I think probably any anthropologist will tell you human beings are very good at creating this idea of societies that um, creating in groups, out groups, and the humans are wired in some ways to kind of naturally um, want to exclude or include people they see as like them. And religion gets I think mixed up in that because I think because I think you know I do believe it's true I think um where Jesus here I think I think he would have had other things on his mind other than yeah. watching them get married I like to hope yeah. um but also at the time he was living in people didn't I don't think you know even there wasn't even a word of homosexuality like it just wasn't people did just didn't even think in that way like that wasn't there was the idea I think maybe I mean, Jesus never mentions anything about it in the Gospels. And I think it's the, it's the Apostle Paul who brings it up the most. And I think in many ways it was associated with um, the kind of the hedonistic, decadent world of the Romans, um, the Greeks, the idea that you um, you had, you know, there's a sort of, um, there's an image, I guess, we get of the Greeks, the idea that they there were a lot of relations between older men and younger boys. And I think... The diastry. Yeah, and it was, I get the sense that there was maybe, because this happens, I guess, when a new community is springing up and they're trying to distance themselves from the people, from the community that would, would they find themselves in. And, you know, Christianity was a Jewish sect. It was a, it was an offshoot of a bigger religion that, but that also had this messianic tendency, quality, and think that, you know, and Paul thought that the end times were coming. So I think when he wrote a lot of his letters, like, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, the ones that come after the Gospels, and he was saying to people, you know, um, behave a certain way, women do this, don't do this. A lot of it was aimed at this idea of, um, it was almost like being told, okay, just the end times are coming, so, like, do everything that we think is the best way to make us look good. And it seems mad to us now, the idea that you'd say the best way that you look good is by telling women that they must stay silent in church or... Um, but I feel like that, and obviously, you know, 
the end times didn't happen, the world didn't end, the Messiah didn't come back. So um, in some ways, since then, the big challenge for anybody of my belief system has been, how do you live in this world where in theory the Messiah could come back? I mean, mm-hmm. in a sense, he possibly won't. That's not really a side of it that I particularly believe in. But I think um, a lot of the kind of the most misogynistic, all the stuff that we would see as misogynistic and homophobic that comes either in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you have to look at the era in which those things are being said. But then, sadly, of course, those things get taken on by, I guess, yeah, when kind of Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity and it spread across the Roman Empire. In some ways, that was the sort of... I see it almost as like the bit when fans of Elvis Presley see, oh, he went into the army, that's when he died. You know, it's kind of... I sort of see it as Christianity went mainstream, it became institutionalised, it got got cosy with the man that's when maybe that was the death knell in some ways, because then it stopped being this kind of, this Mm. radical, radical inclusive movement that said everybody's on board. um, And it became this, became an instrument of power. And I think that is where you get a lot of the stuff that's the institutionalized repressiveness um, is when, but at the same time, sometimes ideas don't spread, even if, unless they do cozy up to power somehow. So that's always the big, and that's a whole other debate, like how, how much do you compromise? How much do you, um, how much do you give way when you're trying to get your message across? Um, and that's such a big, big question. Anything to do with politics? Any pressure group will come across that um, when they're trying to get their message across. Is how much do we, how much do we go? You know, do right. we do we decide that we're in cahoots with the people who pull the strings? Yeah. Right, right. I, I, so yes. Yeah, so, what you were mentioning there um, made me think about, again, this, this piece of the history of Christianity and its kind of corruption of it in, in certain periods of, of, you know, the grand span of time since the fall of the Roman Empire forwards. And Christianity was revolutionary at the time. I mean, what it was advocating, what it was saying, the message. And I think in its truest sense, in its purest sense, Christianity is still revolutionarily revolutionary today because it really is saying that it's questioning the systems that hold us be and is proposing something far more almost utopian, I guess. And it's, it's saying that this is something sustainable, that we can achieve it. Yeah, it is, I think. It's interesting, there's, um, there's an author called Terry Eagleton, who's a philosopher, um, who wrote um, a really incredibly sort of, I think I, think I remember, I think I possibly sent it to you when I sent the original email. It's, um, it's like a really quite in-depth, damning critique of Richard Dawkins' as The God Delusion, um, mm. which is you know, such a famous kind of atheist, canonistic text, or at least it is over here. And he talks about how... Um, uh, Jesus basically, he did piss off a lot of people because, you know... He was he, a gadfly. He was, yeah, he hung out with the wrong people. And if you think about it, someone explained to me recently that hanging out with tax collectors was the equivalent in our the world we live at the moment of hanging out with paedophiles. Like, yeah. you really would go and spend time with the people who no one thought were worth anything. And that's... And I still think that's... 
that's something that I think a lot of people really struggle with. I mean, I live in London and whenever I'm on the tube, um, it's, and I find it, it's just when, when homeless people come on the tube and beg, everybody kind of looks at the shoes, they look at the floor and you just think that's a kind of message for our world where we've happily let the world be ushered in where in this country, we're one of the richest countries on earth, but the homeless population is increasing. I mean, in the pandemic, cracked wide open the, or demonstrated the inequalities that we're, um, that have been plaguing us for a long time. And the fact that we live in a country where nurses have to rely on food banks, even though they pretty much ushered us through the pandemic. And you think, I felt like what he had to say kind of held up a mirror to the world where people allow those kinds of things to happen. And I feel like that's, that is the thing that for me is always worth taking away. And it is, to me, you think about it, you think generally in a lot of places, like progressive parties, left-wing parties are anomalous. They often don't get in because what they're proposing people think is too radical. But if you think about it, the Jesus movement is still here 2000 years later. And it's, even though it's been it's been sullied in many ways by fundamentalists and sullied by too much of a link with power in many ways and by established interests, it's um, it has really been it still remains, I think, one of the most radical and you know to many people in dangerous in a good way ideologies out there. And I think that that's if we could sort of strip it back to what what the original you know what i think unambiguously yes. the original message of the gospel was the and that's what from, i'm a proponent of yeah mm, absolutely yeah because because i mean martin luther king jr was a socialist people i for whatever reason they the uh, socialism is a dirty word but socialism really mm. is of the people right it's of the people and i think if you were to try and obviously this is faux pas and you know i'm probably gonna get the scorn of many people but jesus was a socialist right he was of the people he was with the tax collectors he was with the dirty and you would see him with those people before you would see him with these guys on wall street you know not to say that they're bad people um or anything like that but they're just there's there's something about christianity this this message of give me your broken right? In, in, in its mm. purest sense. Now it's, sometimes I see it and it's like, oh my God, like it makes me feel some of the Christianity that I see, and this is me being so pious and righteous, but I'm like, mm -hmm. I, if Jesus was here today, he would be cussing you out, man. Like not actually, but you, in his own way, he would be challenging you and he would be questioning you. And, and that's why when I was in my twenties, I discovered heavy metal Oh, yeah. it, was this, yeah. it was this message of give me your broken you're fucked up and i love it right and i was like yeah metal and that is the spirit of christianity is this this group of i don't care how you are i love you and that's the message that we're forgetting i think i mean we could say it but not necessarily embody or act on it if you absolutely see and it's a really difficult message to act on. Like, it's almost kind of impossible. But that's yes. one of the things, I suppose, that attracted me as a teenager, as I thought, I know this is really, these are really hard standards to live by, but also completely worked into it is the idea that you are going to fail. That's, that's, mm. you will try, but you know what, you'll get somewhere in the trying, and that's okay. 
and there'll be parts of it you really struggle to live up to and just can't because you're human. But yeah, and Maddie, that is it's worth it. And Maddie, that's such a beautiful way of saying it because I looked at it the different way, uh, in a different sense. You know, um, I was always so hard on myself, and Christianity is like, well, fuck, I can never be perfect. I could never, I could never reach this level of enlightenment. But that was such a misunderstanding of what enlightenment is, right? It's it's like sobriety and abstinence, the difference between the two. Abstinence is like, okay, I just don't drink. Whereas sobriety is like, okay, I have found something completely different that f- that fills that emptiness that I used, you know, a substance or whatever to kind of fill. I found something better, something healthier, you know. And, and, and to me, that's the difference. So I struggled with this idea of like, like I, I had a teacher in high school. Uh, I hope to have him on the show at some point. And he is the truest Christian I've ever met. Like he did not care. He loved you. Whereas I'd go to churches and, and then I'd go and party and, you know, do my bullshit. And I felt guilty after, but with him and still to this day, it remains. He doesn't like, he cares obviously, but he will never change his, his feelings are unwavering. And it's almost like um, in Les Miserables. I love that. Play. Mm, Jean Valjean. Yeah. Jean Valjean and the, the priest at the beginning. And then there's the police officer Javert, which I mean, these, that story is still more relevant than ever today. I mean, Javert being the system that is unforgiving and punitive and crushing and will not forgive you for what you've done in the past and perhaps even the zeitgeist of people online trolls and shit like that and cancel culture and then you have this man who is just always looking for redemption and i think that that is what faith is is it's this constant pursuit and this journey and as long as you keep on that you keep looking within you'll keep moving forward yeah, that's really beautifully put. I mean, I, I love Lemmy's simile for that reason. Like, I just, I mean, what I, I think was so wonderful about the moment when the priest says to Jean Valjean, like, take the silver and go become an honest man. I think the message of that was you become what people expect of you. And if, if someone only ever treats you like you're a thief, then, and, you know, what he was imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family, starving sister and her child, like, he was treated like that was a heinous crime, so he became a criminal. Someone treated him like he was human, that he had he had someone believed in him. And that I think was the is a wonderful message of it. And yeah, I, I certainly find Les Mis has definitely been a big um has certainly been a big inspiration for me spiritually for the reasons you outlined. Like it's um it's a very redemptive, compassionate message, I think, at the heart of it. Um, the journey that Jean Valjean goes on. And I was just going to say quickly, I found out, I found the specific quote I was going to, um, from Terry Eagleton, um, that I was going to say about, uh, about Jesus. Jesus hung out with whores and social outcasts, was remarkably casual about sex, disapproved of the family, which the suburban Dawkins is a trifle crazy about this, urged us to be laid back about property and possessions, warned his followers that they too would die violently, and insisted that the truth kills and divides as well as liberates. He also cursed self-righteous prigs and deeply alarmed the ruling, cra- ruling class. Yes. And that's completely it to me, that paragraph. All the reasons why 
he's he's worth following, but also why so many people were threatened and are still threatened by what he had to say. The the historical Jesus was heavy metal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right? He was middle fingers <laughs> raised up, like, you know, he was a warrior, but in the in in a very different sense of the word. Rather than trying to burn it down, he tried to make people think and be introspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what our society needs, needs, excuse me, is we don't need somebody to say, you know, like, what the fuck are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, we, we need to, we need to be reflective rather than so, like I've said before, we live in a society where there are far more critics than there are creators. And it mm. comes down to what are you, are you a critic? Are you just pointing out all the things that are wrong? Or are you somebody who's proposing solutions? And in the process of doing that, you might get scorned and you might get criticized, but at least you're, you're striving for something better. You're, 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 you're offering ideas rather than casting them down. And again, yeah. that's, that's, that's a lesson that we can all, I, I believe we can benefit from. Yeah, for sure. I think um, particularly in the world after the pandemic, I think a lot of people are going to be asking big questions about the society we want to live in. Right. I'm hoping. Well, I'm hoping. And, 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 and that's just it, right? Soren Kierkegaard talked about uh, fear. Wait, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but action through trembling or, or when you break when you break rules, sometimes you have to break rules to achieve a higher good. Like if, if, you know, my daughter is in the car and she's choking on something and I have to get her to the hospital, I'm going to run a red light, but I'm going to do it safely, you know, but, but I, I'm, yeah. I have to get her to the hospital, right? Fear through trembling. I, I, I forget exactly what he said, but it's this idea of sometimes we have to break rules for a greater good. And I think in our society, we have to, maybe these are the questions that we are starting to ask ourselves is there's all these rules in place that are constrictive and are maybe getting in the way of us being able to love our family. And sometimes we have to, we have to break these rules for, for a better purpose in achieving love. You know, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're definitely in need of that as a society. Um, I think one of the problems is that is I find as you go you get older you feel like you have to be co-opted more and more into structures or systems that are unjust um and it becomes harder and harder to push back against those um I mean for example just it's London is becoming such an expensive um just really prohibitively punishing place to live for a lot of people like the cost of living here is increasing we're seeing so much homelessness we're seeing a lot of people who just and wages are not going up, but it's the solution to it is being isn't being searched for proactively, I think, because there's too much of a a sort of a cozy relationship, I think, with a lot of people in power and people who have, you know, vested interests in capital, in in wealth, in and a lot of stuff that benefits a tiny number of people, but isn't really benefiting most people. Right. And I feel like that it's it's a shame on us that we let things get to that point. And I think a lot of places across the world are feeling that. You know, I think I think half the reason people like Trump are able to succeed in 
Bolsonaro and Viktor Orban, all these demagogues we see across the world is because people are not happy with their situation. But there's been too much complacency about trying to solve it. And I think we do sometimes need to ask ourselves, okay, what are the things we thought were so important? Are they actually so important? And should we maybe break some rules and abolish some taboos to maybe have a world that's better? I think we should. Is that, I don't know if that's a long way of saying we do a revolution. I don't know if I say that, it sounds like I'm calling for people's heads to be chopped off, which I'm not. <laughs> um, and and yeah. revolutions always lose their way. You know, and, and, and that's why I say that, yes, there are so many problems that are incredibly evident and they're coming, you know, they are arising. Black Lives Matter movement, the movement uh, is just a wonderful case in point of look at these problems. Like I've been a benefactor of these systems, but now I'm able to see, oh, Jesus, right? Mm. And my, my point being is, we're starting to kind of question like here in Vancouver, a house is like a million dollars. That's becoming unattainable for anybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then we look around the world and we're like, okay, you know, something, something has got to give because this is not sustainable. Yeah. It's the same here. It's the same in New York. It's the same in Paris. It's the same in, you know, Rio de Janeiro, you know, we're, I think, did you see, did you watch the film Parasite when it came out? Which one? Parasite. No, I didn't. Oh, it's an amazing film. It, it came out about two Parasites. years ago. Parasites, yes, yes. Yeah, Parasite, I've heard of it, yeah. I, never, I never saw it, I never saw it. Oh, it's fantastic. It's just, even though you know it's a film made in Korea about a Korean family, you know, cons this way into this rich family. I think the film, I think why it did so well is because this universal. everyone was root everyone was it was universal everyone was rooting for the con artists who wormed their way into the gullible rich family because they were like how is it we've got to the state that in two cities there are these people living side by side and it's interesting I, I worked for a while i had a job in the house of a billionaire woman who lives in london and her house looks very like the one in the film and and it's true i think that particular class of people are their lives in many ways they have far more in common with people in other parts of the world than they might do with people on their doorstep um and that's i think that's why that film struck a chord even though it was all in you know it was all in korean and i think it was it told a very universal story and i think that's that is the challenge for our age is how do we how do we engage with the fact that capitalism has let a lot of people down it might have it might have also got great great benefit great flourishing raised living standards but i think I think it's ultimately we've got to ask ourselves, you know, what do we really value? And mm. if we don't, there will be, I think there'll be a day of reckoning sooner rather than later if we don't, um, if we don't address that. I, I read a lot of secular books, uh, such as Yuval Nora Harari. I always mess up that name. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing author. And uh, anyways, the things that I read uh it brings me closer to my own belief that there is something i just it's just not tangible is was what my belief is it's like it's so beyond our conception which is a wonderful cop-out by the way but it's so beyond mm -hmm. our conception what god is or what is after that it's like you can never you will never be able to to um prove me otherwise right you'll never be able to say there is no god and and 
have drop five points and you'd be like, okay, you're right. There's no God. I guess I'm just going to jump off a bridge or something anyways. But my point is, is that he talks about um, Faustian deals, you know, that, that the, the agricultural revolution was a Faustian deal because the way we had it before as hunter gatherers perhaps was a better, more sustainable way of living. And we were happier. And now we live in capitalism in these, consumerist societies where that's the lie that we have that's the faustian lies we have to keep consuming to keep this thing alive and if we stop it will fall apart and there will always have to be somebody who's a benefactor and somebody who is not a benefactor in the capitalist society and again we're just we're seeing this more and more it's becoming self-evident that we have to find a different way the other thing too is that religion and faith i think when you really get into it like for example for me heavy metal when i was at a show and it was like i was transcending you know i was so in the moment that these things can make us feel our most human mm, absolutely right yeah i've um i've had some of the most the most transcendent experiences at concerts. Um, and my, my brother's very into heavy metal. I think he'd um, uh, he probably know maybe a lot of the ba- the bands that um that you like. Um, my thing is more um Yusu and Bruce Springsteen. More my right. thing when I've when I've seen them live. Oh, it's um, yeah. yeah, it's just yeah, it does just. And that that's one of the things where I, I feel, I feel like even if I stopped being a Christian, I'd find it very hard to believe that there's no other dimension to life um, beyond what we can see and touch and smell. I feel like music is a really good example of that, of how I think a lot of people have profoundly spiritual experiences in moments like that, even if they wouldn't say that it's a result of God or anything. Um, I think it's, yeah, music is something that, um, and for me, literature as well, remind us that, um, I think I like the phrase, um, the world is there to, destroy your soul art is there to remind you that you have one i've always liked that Whoa. i can't remember who said it i read it somewhere i'll have to go and I have to go and look it up and get back to you but um, i love that one well nietzsche yeah, said great. if it wasn't for music existence would be a mistake or something like that <laughs> i like that that's yeah. great yeah and 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 even nietzsche he said you know uh the truest that the only real christian died on the cross two thousand years ago which to mm. me is telling of what he believed. You know, everyone, everyone yeah. s- says, you know, nihilism and stuff like that. And that Nietzsche was the first proponent of that. But clearly he is suggesting that there was something to these, the figure of Jesus and other figures like this that promote a message that is counterintuitive to the world that we now live in. That's, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think... It's yeah, interesting you use that phrase counterintuitive because the the church I go to in London has had quite a long history of being involved in sort of quite radical movements and the woman the woman who preaches there a lot did say to sort of us at one point she said you're involved in something countercultural at the moment just by coming here when fifty years ago it would have been the orthodoxy right but then you've got to ask yourself what does that mean you know what do you want that counterculture to mean and I think. I mean, it was interesting. Um, a few years ago, some of the 
religious leaders in the Church of England released a text, I think it was called something like Built on Foundations Built on Sands or something like that. And it was criticising the austerity regime that the government here had implemented where basically they were saying, we're going to really cut back on public spending. And it's really caused so many problems since. I mean, it's openly now seen as a mistake, even by people within the, the ruling Conservative Party have said that austerity was a terrible idea. It's left more people homeless. It's led to the rise in food banks. It's led to cuts in social care, cuts in schools, cuts to legal aid. And it was interesting that the leaders of the Church of England pretty much, they didn't openly criticise the government, but they said, this is not great. You know, you're creating a society that's just, what all you care about is balancing the books or so you claim is about balancing the books, but you're helping create a world that's more individualistic and, um, and less concerned about what we do with the most weak and the most vulnerable. And, and I was like, well, that's what... That's what counterculture should be. I think it should be holding up a mirror to the, those in power and saying, are you really doing what's right by the people who you're supposed to be representing and the people you're supposed to be looking after and whose best interests are hard you're meant to have? And I currently feel like our leaders don't. Um, I don't know how you feel about in Canada, but um, I feel like a lot of people around the world don't feel like the people have wangled their way into power or doing what they should be doing. And I think that, you know, if religious groups are to have any relevance, particularly in societies where religious people are in a minority, then it should be to say, we need to do better. We need to do better by the people who are the most vulnerable and who are the most weak and who are the, who are the poorest. And, and we need to be on the side of right. And that is, that is how, you, how you make your mark and try and argue for any kind of relevance in the world we're in now. Right. And, and, and I firmly believe that if you want to fuck up your country, don't, don't invest in education. <laughs> right. Indeed. Yeah. And, 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 and we're seeing cuts all the time because I'm, I'm an educator. I'm actually a, uh, a counselor in the elementary oh, stream. Yeah. And it's like, really, you guys are making all these cuts. Meanwhile, during COVID, uh, you know, we're fighting each other over toilet paper and stuff like this. Like I just, I just, I think we're seeing clear now because of everything that's happened, we're at a point, we are at the precipice, I think, in terms of where we're going. And one more step, oblivion. We have to turn around and we have to face that mirror. And faith has always been such a powerful, that's always been the original message to me of faith is to look at yourself Fix yourself, and then you can heal the world. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's a good. That's a good manifesto for our age. <laughs> yeah. So now I, I, uh, I am. You know, I, I'm looking at the time here, and I'm like, okay, I want to make sure that I got everything that you wanted to talk about. The other thing too was, you're such a like an awesome writer. And I was reading your article about uh, uh, the Mandalorian and faith. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age, the fact that this is a, a, a motif or, you know, whatever, this is the underlying message of the show, again, proves the point that we need these bigger messages. So I guess the question there is, in your experiences, you're still so drawn to this subject. 
how have you not yet lost interest? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. I was um I was asking myself that recently because I um I was working for um a quite explicitly religious newspaper up until recently. I was writing for a newspaper called The Church Times, which um is um generally tends to report on quite tit-for-tat news items about arguments within, I guess, what, and your side of the pond would be called the Episcopal Church, or was over here would be called the Anglican Church. And I I did find, like, I was getting quite worn down with it. I was thinking, I'm just not interested in reporting on yet another schism, because mm-hmm. God in religion, we love our schisms. Um, and yet another one about homosexuality and I'm just sort of a bit like we should move on from this I'm getting tired of this and um and I do feel that side of it is does get a bit wearing and and it does sort of there are times yeah what I think any subject matter that you get very immersed in you do get some fatigue at times and I think what's the thing in some ways that circles back to your point about sort of religion and faith. Cause I feel like, you know, religions like so many institutions, particularly when they have denominations, um, different schisms, um, there'll be so much inevitably there'll be so much na- if navel gazing is the word where people just endlessly focus on spats, disagreements, moments where people have fallen out over a minor point of doctrine I think that's inevitable and you I mean interestingly I've heard um I've even heard there's been splits like that among heavy metal fans you know that there are in any kind of and you could argue Christianity is just one big subset of Jewish fandom you know it's sort of there are there are fallouts there are and that side of it gets very very wearing and I think that's the sort of if you're involved in any kind of subcultural group I think there'll come a point where you go, um, is, you know, do I really give two fucks about this anymore? But I think the thing <laughs> that always draws me, you know, yeah. even if you really, really love something, there'll come a point where you, like, I think where you think, am I kind of done with this? But actually, I think the thing that keeps drawing me back is, one, even though, you know, I'm, I'm a churchgoer and I, the church I go to, I have a good community there, friends that I really like, and I feel like fundamentally it's a really good group of creative, interesting, awesome people that care about, also care about refugees and asylum seekers and trans people and things. But what keeps drawing me back is, 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 is often art forms like TV and film mm-hmm. um, and, you know, Star Wars as such is a, has been a big thing in my life. Um I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely obsessed with The Mandalorian, as you may have picked up. Um, and, and yeah, literature and music and the things that keep drawing me back, I think. I think, in fact, one of your countrymen is um, a novelist called Yann Martel. He's from Quebec. He wrote a book called The Life of Pi. Um, it came oh, yes, out yes, years yes, ago. yes. Yeah. He's, his, his views are fascinating because when he wrote the book, he talked about how growing up in Quebec... And this is what he, he claims. I don't know if this, this chimes with your understanding of your country's history, but that Quebec used to be a very repressive, backward place, and that it used to be seen as quite a, you know, a place where the church had way too much control. And but then it went through this kind of almost mini enlightenment flowering. And but as a result, Yann Martel was kind of brought up with this idea that just religion's a relic of a bygone era. I don't think about that stuff. And then 
he wrote the novel, which is set in India and and about a very religious boy in India. And he said that when he went there, he spent, you know, in India, there are gods everywhere. You know, religion is everywhere. He had to kind of reassess what he thought. And he said that in some ways, the message of the book and the thing he learned was this idea that what do you, what interpretation do you want of life? Do you want the the view that there is nothing else, that all there is is what we see and can sense with our our five senses? And and that is, you know, if people want to live like that, that's totally fine. Um, I don't have a problem with that innately, but I think the moment when he talks about how the message of the book in some ways is stop being so logical, stop being so rational all the time. Reason will take you only so far. There will come a point where just leap, 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 you know, have that that jump into something that's a bit less certain. And that will give you a whole other perspective and a whole other dimension, which can sharpen and enrich your view of the world. Um, and I think that's, I think that's, yeah, that's what keeps me interested in this subject I think or keep me wanting to write about it and even in you know I'm a the, the novel you know wrote my first novel recently and I found that stuff creeping back in even though the book wasn't the story wasn't explicitly about religion in any way but there's times when the characters debate life death heaven and hell you know and it's I think these are eternally the interesting questions but I know that I fundamentally I just feel it, it does add a very enriching dimension to life to view the world in this way. Um, and I think it's um, very much a part of being human, I think. We're, we're yearning for understanding. And I love what you said about, it, it's like magic. You know, if you believe that life is magical, it is. It's just the power of belief. You know, if we just always appeal to our reason and our logic, good Lord, <laughs> you know, good Lord, right? If you, then we have these moments like I was driving and I had a song on today and it made me think of my friend who'd passed. And man, I was crying. I could just say, oh, it's because I'm a human being and I'm, you know, blah, 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 this. And I could try to justify why this is happening. Or I could just say, I'm having a beautiful moment and I'm experiencing whatever is out there. And I have that open, open door, open mind, and as a consequence, an open soul. And that's, that's when you're in that flow state. That's when you experience the magic of life. And without tragedy, without loss, you would never have it's, you know, it's uh, the other side of the pendulum, right? And that's what, death is what makes us feel alive and life is what makes us feel death. The mm. economy. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I now the other, the, the, the sort of the last question for you is, is human beings in our nature, are we meant to be, these agents of love and kindness or to be these nasty you know this nasty brutish and short as thomas hobbes said in leviathan what do you think is our nature oh i think we have a bit of both um mm. i think i think it is ultimately our choice i think one of the uh one of the questions you asked me sort of in in our email thread was about free will and i think 
I think it's difficult because human beings are so enmeshed in the structures that we find ourselves in. This is a slightly Marxist view of the world, but um, uh, if people will excuse me for that. Um, but I think we are very much embedded in the world we find ourselves in, and sometimes we find that it's hard to it's hard to live a life that's completely morally upright or completely one where we don't contribute to injustice in some way. Um, and I think it's, we have, most people, I think if they're honest with themselves, have both those instincts within them. Um, and it's about at what point do you, do you decide which way you're gonna go? And I think, but then there will also be times where you swing in one direction or the other. I think it's, um, human nature is so full of gray areas and nuances and, and people I think, yeah, it's that, I guess it's that old question as well, nature versus nurture. It's how much do are our behaviors dictated by the kinds of upbringings we had or how much of it is our own choices, how much of it is a result of um, inherited ideas that we take for granted about the world we live in and the societies we find ourselves in. Um, so I think, I think in some ways though, if we were just, if we were just made to be purely about love, goodness, light, if we never danced with that dark side of us, we maybe wouldn't, wouldn't create a lot of, a lot of great art, a lot of great literature, a lot of, you know, um, and that's not, I don't think that's just, doesn't necessarily mean that art should be a justification for all the shitty things people have done to each other, but I think the fact that we have those tendencies, and if people are honest about them, can also lead, um, it's some very interesting creative tendencies. Um, but we are, yeah, we are, we are a product of so many things. Um, and I hope, I certainly want to try and, you know, make life more about leading towards the good. Um, but I'm not going to pretend I don't have times where I think, oh, you know, um, let's, uh, like, you know, like I mentioned this idea of, you know, the echoes of Bacchus, Dionysus, Loki, and even the words of Jesus, this idea of, oh, you know, what happens when we, uh, when we let the devil come calling? Um, that's, I think actually a really great TV series that actually illustrates that very question that you ask is the TV series Daredevil. It's on the Marvel ones on Netflix. And yes. it's, yeah, um, which is all about a superhero who's endlessly fighting internally with the idea of, I have this great darkness in me, but I want to use it for the good somehow. Um, and right. can you do that by being a vigilante? And that's a whole major question. And I think even Carl Jung talks about the shadow self and how one of the infinite journey that we have to take is to face our shadow selves and to somehow learn to love and harness it for the power that it can produce. Because great change can come from places of anger but it's how you go about that change you know going in with a sledgehammer and busting it all mm. down that's very dangerous but harnessing that power and using it to change constitutions to change dogma to change problems in the way that people see you can achieve a better earth i do feel yeah, indeed. Oh. So maybe it's turning that darkness into righteous anger and channeling it in the right way. Can't have light without you. We'd never know what light is without the dark, and we'd never know the opposite, right? That 
life is such a dichotomy, right? It's it's the yin the yang, chaos order, as Jordan B. Peterson says. Love that guy, by the way. Um, which is funny. I, I I have ambivalent feelings about him because sometimes he does his public stuff, and I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, and then he's I quite a controversial his, figure. I know he? he's yeah. he's a contrarian by nature, and that's what mm. that's what he's about. And that's why I love him because I I hear his books, and I'm like. Man, I love this guy. And then he, he does some weird publicity stunt. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Anyways, mm-hmm. is that not what life is? It's never, the only consistency is change. Hmm. Maddie, thank you so much for your time. It has been such a pleasure, a privilege, an honor to have you on. Um, and, and once again, thank you for, for reaching out and saying, hey, you know, if you're going to have one side, why not have the other? I'm glad that's what you're doing on here. And thanks so much for having me on here. I think uh, I think we solved a few of the world's problems <laughs> in the process. <laughs> yes, you know, if 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 only if only we would use our ears more than our mouth more often. <laughs> that's why indeed. we have a two to one ratio. So, indeed, indeed. Um, thank you. So yeah, much. thank you so much. Um, it's been great. Right. Once again, that was the wonderful Maddie Fry discussing with us uh, religion, faith, the importance of belief, why we need something to understand the world that we're living in. As I've said before, I my beliefs are eclectic. I don't necessarily believe in one specific ideology to believe and interpret the world through. I, I think that God and heaven and whatever comes after us is kind of almost beyond our, our scope of belief. Um, but that's just me. And maybe that's just an easy cop out. So, I mean, who knows? But that said, I do believe that we all need something to believe in, something to make sense of this world. And whatever we do, it won't be perfect because... We're not perfect, but it can get us pretty close to that point. And the best way to get there is by having conversations, open dialogues with other people about it, where we're okay with people challenging what it is that we believe so that we can make a stronger core belief from it. And that's what we did. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye now. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.